historically, I can tell you that by and large, if you start to do an experiment with customers, right? So you segment them into two groups, you change something about your product, and then you see who is actually loving it and who is hating it. This is an objective, verifiable way to see whether your hypothesis was good or not. In average, 65% of these ideas fail. So what you need is you need a process that makes sure that we're not just shipping something, but that we only ship the good stuff. And companies are incredibly bad with this, right? So the goal of building something is not to ship it. The goal of building something is to check whether it actually has impact in the market and otherwise you throw it away. That's mm -hmm. the difference between hacks and scalable measures. And that's what we call product-led growth. Welcome to Product with Benash. I'm Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products, and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Leah Tharin, who's currently head of product at Jua.ai, where she's leading the company's pivot to being product-led in machine learning. She's a proponent of empowering product growth, marketing, and sales teams through product-led principles in B2B. And Leah has also led part of the core product at SmallPDF, a B2C platform with over 50 million monthly active users. Hi, Leah. How are you doing today? Good morning. It is such a pleasure to be here. I am the main reason why I'm actually on one of these podcasts is usually because I'm getting introduced with so many nice words. So I really appreciate it. It's very nice to be here. Thank you. No, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for taking the time to do it. Before we dive into today's topics, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what you've been up to? Interestingly, I always struggle with introducing myself in a coherent way. So from every episode to every episode, this might sound a little bit different. But the short story is, so far, I've been in tech for about 22 years with various different roles. But as a rough kind of blurry focus over the career. The first part was focused very much on UX research. So qualitative side of understanding why people do what they do. And the second half is in product management and product leadership. But all of this is a bit messy and a bit blurry. And to maybe make it a little bit more exciting, I founded three to four companies in my time, crashed two of those gloriously into the wall, learned nothing from it. And now in retrospect, I learned, started to learn a lot from them. And I'm in general, just very passionate about product leadership and product management. And I try to write about it on my, on my blog, which is www and then my first name and last name.com. And I'm trying to be actionable. This is my differentiator in the market. I try to be actionable towards anything that comes up in product-led growth and B2B, which is a topic that is very dear to my heart. And that's why I spend so much time writing about it. One of the reasons also why I reached out was obviously the fact that you share a lot of content around product-led growth. And one could say it's a very trendy topic at the moment. And one of the things I can see speaking to a number of product leaders across Europe, but also in the UK and the US, there's like these two factions, these two groups of people that I speak to. On one side, I hear a bunch of product people saying, I don't know what the big fuss is about product-led growth. It's been around for the past 20 years. So, you know, why are people making a big thing out of this? And on the other side, 
I see a lot of people talking about PLG with a lot of energy and excitement and treating it like this very novel thing. I'm very curious to hear a little bit about what's your point of view on that. So that's a very good point and one that I absolutely love arguing around for one particular reason. First of all, 90% do not know what we're talking about when we say product-led growth. And I'm saying this because I continuously see this happening in comment sections whenever there is something posted on product-led growth. What's the big deal? Are you against sales-led? Are you against this? Are you against that? Let's just define for a very short second what I mean when I talk about product-led growth and how the term came to be, because this is very important to frame the discussion. At its heart, it's about customer centricity and how to show the product before you start to badger people with your sales people. So I guess more about showing something before talking about it. It's less about convincing people with talking about a product and just more showing off the core value before you actually convert them. Now, this is not like a crazy example of anything, right? Like we've done this in B2C for the longest time. That is correct. But the term also originated from B2B. Now, this framing is extremely important because in B2B, what we used to do historically is we started to separate everybody into buyers and users. And then we started to have a huge sales process and we went off, right? And we tried to convince people. Now, the critics might say, yeah, okay, Leah, fine. So now we're going to create freemiums and trials and everything that doesn't change the fundamental truth that we still are looking at B2B customers in this kind of way. The difference between product-led growth and why the term even exists in the first place, because it is a summary of existing things, of course, is that the behavior of B2B clients up to enterprise has changed. And it has changed in a way that you need to address them differently through your products than we used to. And what I mean with this is that in the past 10 to 15, 20 years, the way that companies were trying to position themselves is that they said, we need to get faster and better in producing products. Everybody agrees on this. And everybody also says that they're customer-centric. They think that they're customer-centric. But the problem is that everybody is optimizing for building products faster. And they don't have processes in place to make sure that what they build makes sense. Let me elaborate on this point just really quick, because this is a very important yeah, distinction. Please. So... When we talk about agile methodologies, for instance, what we talk about is we optimize groups of people to produce something in an organized manner so we can produce more of it, right? We have stories, we want to build something, we estimate the effort, we try to also define like what's necessary to build it and so forth. There's a lot of processes to ensure that this is good, but the problem good means the purpose of this entire process is to ship something. And this is how we build for B2B. But the problem is you should not ship something. You should only ship what has impact. And impact needs to be measured on the customer side. And what I mean with this is that historically, I can tell you that by and large, if you start to do an experiment with customers, right? So you segment them into two groups, you change something about your product, and then you see who is actually loving it and who is hating it, this is an objective, verifiable way to see whether your hypothesis was good or not. In average, 65% of these ideas fail. So what you need is you need a process that makes sure that we're not just shipping something, but that we only ship the good stuff. 
And companies are incredibly bad with this, right? So the goal of building something is not to ship it. The goal of building something is to check whether it actually has impact in the market and otherwise you throw it away. And that is the big difference between building something fast, which leads to feature bloat, and then you have these huge backlogs, nobody knows what's going on. This seems like counterintuitive because a lot of people tell me, yeah, we have these processes and we iterate fast and we ask the customer whether they like it or not. The problem is that there's a very important step missing between what the customer says to you and what you do afterwards with it. There's a huge, there's a huge opportunity and also other processes and frameworks that you need to make sure that this actually happens. And a good example is that you need to only ship in an outcome-driven way what makes you happier, right? Or like the customer, but in a quantifiable way. And for that, we need to measure the reactions of the customers in some way that is not tied to revenue. So for instance, the amount of listeners to your podcast that give you a good rating afterwards, right? Just the amount of listeners is not good enough. And it's not the revenue that you create from the inbound leads or whatever. This is, it's about... Are there signals from the customers that we deem to be important that have increased because of what we shipped? And if it does... On that point, I can already tell you I'm not doing really well. Yeah, no, but like I'm just saying, like <laughs> you also need to have a specific amount of data for this, right? So like correct, it's not as correct. easy as I make it, of course. But the thing is, if it doesn't work, you need to have a process in place to not ship it. And that is the big difference. So product-led in that sense means that you only do what has impact in the market and companies are bad in doing this because they only care about whether they build something fast. There's nothing against this. And then the other thing is the growth part of it. So like product-led growth is that we only verify and ship stuff that is repeatable. For instance, if you only invite friends and family to your podcast, you cannot scale this. You're, unless you have a really big family, but sorry, I did not mean to assume anything, but... <laughs> <laughs> the point is, you're running out of things at some point, right? It would have to be a pretty big family. I yeah, you cannot scale your family in that sense, at least not that <laughs> fast. But if you do it with people that you can reach out on LinkedIn on a specific mm -hmm. topic, then this is scalable because you have proven through continuous recruiting efforts, you know, that you can get these people like me on the podcast and then it kind of works. And that's mm -hmm. the difference between hacks and scalable measures and... That's what we call product-led growth in it. It sounds always very lofty and hard to understand for people who are not in this space. I understand. But what I'm accusing you all of, I'm not loping you now in, like just the people who do not agree with this, is that the processes that you have at the end of the shipping is missing this incredibly important part of verifying whether it had impact with the customers. And you need to be ready to unship most of what you do. And that's not often talked about. And this is incredibly important in B2B because in B2B, these companies start to have choice. And if you have choice, then you go to the product that is better. And the product that is better is not the product with more features. And that has changed in the past. This was a bit of a masterclass for myself, actually. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I think it's good that you're touching on some of these critical points. In product, for the past couple of years, there's been a lot of talk about shifting teams focus from something that is very output based to something that's very outcome based. And to this day, I think it's still very abstract to a lot of product leaders. Like what does this shifting to outcomes actually mean? What am I measuring? How do I translate that to the teams that are actually building the stuff? Marty Kagan does a lot of work trying to evangelize this stuff and give examples, but 
sometimes I feel what is missing, and this is probably due to the maturity of product management as a craft itself, there might not be enough structured history to actually give a variety of examples across, you know, verticals, sectors, business models, et cetera, so that people get this stuff. One thing that I'm interested to dive a little bit into is maybe a couple of examples of what does this actually look like when it's being done? So this is a very good example of the difference of what two types of product leaders are doing in the industry. So one of the types is the Marty Kagan type that talks about a vision of an ideal state from the top down. And this vision of this ideal state is not really realistic or in that sense that you cannot derive operational meaning from it unless you already work in it. It's like describing, oh, like Florida is a beautiful place or I love living in Texas. This is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. So this is an important thing to do. Sometimes you need to have some vision to go somewhere. This is this all makes sense. But then you have the operational kind of side of what you just said which are how-to guides or how-to manuals. And this is where I live most of the time because I feel like those two together are how you get to winning teams in the end. It's like first you convince people by the vision and then you go into the operative side. So if somebody tells you like, oh, I've read Inspired by Marty Kagan or whatever and I cannot operationalize it. Yeah, of course not, right? It's impossible to do. So let's just go into the operational side because I can actually visualize to you in an example uh, very specifically on what it means. So let's just go back 20 years to the state where we had none of this. And let's talk about feature factories. So you and me have a company and we need to produce something like, let's say a bicycle. You can use this for anything. It's not just tech. It's also for hardware. If I'm telling you, hey, Axel, please just... In the next three months, I want to have a mass production ready bike from you. And this is a feature. Why is it a feature? Because there's no quality attached to it. I'm just like measuring you on whether you deliver the bike or not. You could deliver me a bike that is literally useless. It has two wheels, but the quality is is garbage and then whatever, right? So the way that we tried to tackle this was with waterfall. And waterfall goal setting was in a way that we sat down and we thought really hard, okay, last time this didn't work. So I need to tell Axel exactly what he needs to build. So then you define, okay, it needs to look like this, then it needs to do this, and then it needs to do that. And the problem of this is that this does not think about the market and customer centricity as a system that is extremely hard to predict. We are very bad in figuring out what the customer actually wants. So this did not work. So then what we tried to come up with, and this was the time where people were separated on floors, right? So like we had the product managers up there, we had the designers over there, we had the engineers over there. Then what we tried to come up with was cross-functional teams. So before that, these were matrix organizations. That's like the separation on the floors. Cross-functional teams had the idea, hey, why don't I get Axel into the same room as Leah? And then the designer that we contract is also in the room, like metaphorically speaking. And then we together try to design the bike in an iterative process. And that was like the birth of Agile. So we got together and we figured, hey, why don't we just build a prototype, give it to the customer, see whether they hate it or they fall over and everything. And then we do this entire process. So far, so good. And that really worked well because sometimes you get inputs for the design of the bike from an engineer. And sometimes you get input for the design of a bike from the engineering point, from the designer and so forth, right? So like cross-functional teams are very strong and powerful in this regard. 
But we also had to change the goal. It was not anymore about we need to create a bike. It was we need to create a bike that sells well in the market, right? So now it's an outcome. But it turns out that this is not good enough either. Because what we did is, and it is an outcome-based goal, and that's the important distinction to get right. It is an outcome-based goal, but it is a bad one. Why? Because if I incentivize you and the team to build something that makes a lot of money, you might start to cut corners to maximize the short-term value, the short-term money that I gain from creating this actual bike. I use cheap materials. I endanger the customer. I start to cut costs on safety and so forth. So what did we start to do? We started to add people into the company or into the team that were dealing with these issues, like security people, QA, all that kind of stuff. So we added more and more process to deal with this kind of problem. And here we go. Now we are in the age of product-led growth. And the difference is you don't need these security people and these crazy QA processes if the goal is changed to how happy are the customers after repeat usage of this particular product. And for that, I set up a process that actually measures how happy they are. And as some other customer success metrics, for instance, like how many kilometers did you drive with the bike? Because that is a direct indicator that you love it and so forth. Because what this does is we know as a business nowadays that if I make you use the bike more, this generates revenue. But I'm not giving you the revenue as the signal to incentivize the team. And this distinction is minor, but it is extremely important. And the differentiation we're talking about here is value capture metrics and value creation metrics. So value capture metrics are stuff that is important for finance, for the C-level. That's the revenue. This is how many people have bought it. Like what are we doing in which market? And the value creation metrics are how many kilometers did you drive with the bike? Are you happy with it? I don't care how, but you make my customers happy. That's the kind of message that we're doing. So it's not just output versus outcome. It's about output in the past features, outcome in the more recent past, like revenue, and outcome on customer happiness. And this is the present. And this is the big change that has happened. And the problem is that the intent, we should build something good for the customer, is not good enough. You need to have an incentivization system that takes care of it. It never worked over intent. You need to design your organization. You need to incentivize the teams on it. And that's what product-led growth is. Do you feel stuck not knowing how to tackle a problem? Or you're looking for a solution to help your team members grow in their craft? Either way, check out panache.io. Panache works with product leaders to bring expert insights and proven frameworks you can use in your role as a product person. Companies like Atlassian, Content Square, and Miracle all choose Panache to provide the right level of training and coaching to their product teams so they can perform at their best. Whether you're a product leader or an individual contributor, head to panache.io to get an idea of how we can help you level up today. Check out panache.io. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. You talked about how things have massively changed in B2B. And you said people have options now, right? They 
might come to you for this product because of the feature set. They also might go to this other guy there for this other product in this like very exciting moment, I guess, in product-led growth. A lot of people are rising up to the challenge of figuring out how this new way of doing things will drive uh, impact for their business. Re might be revenue, but also it might be something else. How are you seeing companies basically gear up to win this game? What are some of the things that these companies are doing differently to put them in a different league where they're going to win? So if you have a problem that needs solving, which is the basis of any product, right? Nobody wants a product. Someone wants to have a problem to be solved, whether this is a tech product or an assistant that takes care of it. It's just, we also talked about this before, right? So like we have the problem of, I need to have someone that is taking off some stuff from my table so I have more time for myself. And the same happens for B2B because as we know, B2B is like any company is comprised of people still. If you have a problem, for instance, we need to have a CRM to manage our client contacts because all the salespeople are starting to notify everybody like three times from the same company and so forth. So let's say you want to have a CRM and you think that this is the solution. You have choice now. And because you have choice, this is what we call a commoditized market, right? The choice is not anymore the product in itself. And the product in itself, the way that we described it was like the tool, right? So the tool itself is the CRM in its heart. Like how easy is it to use? How can you set up flows that are starting to message people and so forth? The product nowadays is not that. It is also the pre-experience of how to onboard onto the tool, how to find the tool, how easy it is to learn and how easy it is to onboard others, how easy it is in general to integrate it into your life. If you think about it in this case, historically, we were talking about products as being the hardware that you put in your life. So for instance, in a car, the Tesla is the product, right? So that's the core product. We call this the core product. But there's much more to a Tesla experience today. There is the charging network. Where do I charge this? How do I pay for the bills for this? How do I check how much the electricity bill is and so forth? Where do I service the car now? Because it's a different thing. So these things are not afterthoughts anymore. We start to recognize that these are actually differentiating factors where people actually say, if I have to go between a Tesla and a Polestar, for instance, I might go for the Tesla because the charging network is better. Now that had nothing to do with the car itself. So it's about recognizing the importance of this because the easier you make it for me to try out something and bring it into my life, the more likely it is that someone else is doing this as well. And then the only reason why you would keep me in the product is as if your product is really good. So it's a curse and a blessing at the same time. It's like reducing the price in a market that is very expensive. The others have to follow, right? Because if there's one player in the market that does this, they will accept to have a slightly inferior core product as long as it's easy to learn. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to call a salesperson. You don't have to manage all the licenses first and so forth. So for instance, if you're talking to people, designers, product managers or whatever, like that used some of the Adobe products, for instance, and you talk like whether they enjoy them or not, a lot of them will tell you, oh, with all the login and the cloud, it's just a bit messy. Like They're not talking about the core product. And this is what we oftentimes do. If I ask you, Axel, what annoys you about 
anything in your life, your phone or whatever. Oftentimes, services that have nothing to do with the phone are actually mentioned because the integration is bad or you had a bad experience with the customer support. So all of this is the actual product and the core product that the product teams are building is not the only thing anymore. And that's the kind of difference in understanding on how to deal with B2B clients. Because the further out market that you go, so for instance, from a small business to an enterprise and so forth, the deciding factor is not the cost that they pay you. How much do we pay every month for this product? It is how easy is it to bring you into our company? Because we might need to retrain 2,000, 3,000 people on this particular product. So the cost for getting any product into an enterprise is always high. Always. Even if it's the most simple to integrate tool, right? But like you need to take care of this and you need to understand this. And companies are waking up to this and they pay a lot of time to not just work on the core product, but also like on the entire onboarding experience and continuously like delivering value. Just imagine if you have a B2B product and you have a problem and you have a chat in your product and within five minutes, someone guaranteed is answering you with really good, helpful help. That is a game changer. That is an absolute game changer and it has nothing to do with the feature set that you offer in the core product. I guess this is where I want to talk a little bit more concretely about some of the metrics that are involved around PLG. What are these things that we're measuring? People talk about activation, retention, engagement. I, for one, having spent a lot of time coaching product teams around goal-setting outcome goals, et cetera, I can see that a lot of these teams not only do not have a framework for goal setting, but most of the time they don't even understand what we're talking about. How have you shared this expertise or educated people along this way, like putting these things in place? So this is part of my value proposition when I advise clients, right? So I also do company advising. I have a couple of retainers every month where I just get companies into the call like this. And this is exactly what I'm doing. So I can share with you now how I would structure this with any company because I'm not operationally involved with them in the sense that I could do it for them, but I need to teach them how to do it. The most basic framework that you can use, and I'm going to use a product that everybody knows, or hopefully everybody knows in here, which is Slack, is that you can use for a specific user group, right? So you can also have multiple user groups, like you can have the normal users, and then you can have the CFOs that are signing off on the bill, whatever. You take one group, And you say, okay, let's divide this group in our product into four sub-steps. And these four sub-steps are almost consecutive describing how much success they had with the product so far. Okay? So for instance, if we use Slack and I get together and Slack is coming, getting me in as an advisor, then we need to sit down first with the entire management and the company and we try to figure out, okay, Can we divide our product in four different kind of steps to define what it means to have customer success? What are specific signals that we know, that we infer from that customer success is happening? And it's not revenue, right? So this is what I meant before. So for instance, for Slack, it could be, we call this the setup moment. A setup moment means you have been setting up the software, for instance, right? Can also be something else. And you're ready to go, but you didn't use it yet. So that would mean has downloaded the application and has installed it and maybe logged in for the first time. That is the first kind of part of your journey. And then the aha moment 
would be you've been sending a message to someone for the first time or you invited someone else to the Slack channel. And then we have a Eureka moment. Maybe you're using a specific function that is only visible to you once you actually start to use the product. And then we have a very important moment that we usually call the habit moment where you say, if people have used the product and or like the B2B company or the account has sent 2,000 messages in the first 30 days or like after 30 days, then we call this a habit. This behavior is only exerted by people who love the product. Nobody sends 2,000 messages if they hate it, right? And now you can actually start to segment your customers. So what you can say is like, how many of those that we have did actually exert this behavior? So have these customers reached a setup moment? Yes, they have. Did they go to the aha moment? No, they didn't, right? So now I have a completely different funnel. It's not about, oh, who clicked here and then went through this. It's all tied to engagement. Are they activated? And what does that mean for us? And the reason why I also advocate for four steps is, is that don't overcomplicate it. I've seen funnels of success metrics at 12, and then you have a tree over there and everything. Nobody understands this anymore. It needs to be as simple as I just explained it to you. And this is extremely powerful because now I can take these moments and I can say, in the next three months, what you're going to do is you're going to improve the happiness rating for those customers that have reached the habit moment. Or... You have to eat the specific rating that the people have given you that reached the aha moment or whatever, because there might be a problem getting people from aha to eureka to habit and so forth. You can do all kinds of funny things with this, because let's say we agree that the eureka moment is what I told you, right? So like 2000 messages after 30 days, the moment they reach this particular stage, you can set up a process and say, customer success is reaching out to them. Because... If you have a process in your company that says, we have this funnel, right? Like we have sales reaching out and they're closing and everything is fine. And after 30 days, the customer success agent reaches out. What usually happens is that if you have a specific amount of time defined between these two, is that some you, some customers have not used your product at all because, I don't know, everybody was in holidays or whatever. It's just like time is not a good measure of any of this. But exerted user behavior is... And it's just incredibly powerful once they start to use your product a lot to get a call. Hey, how are you doing? We noticed that you've been using the product. And we also see what you were doing. Did you know that you can also create channels and this kind of stuff? Did you know that you can do this and that? It becomes a completely different conversation. And customers really appreciate this. Because I'm not talking about with someone that has no clue and it just contacts me because they have to after 30 days. That's why this is so powerful. One of the things that resonates is what you just said about complexity in funnels. If you look at like traditional models of how many people have done this action on the product and then done this action, et cetera, versus have they reached this moment, which sounds like something that's very in line with the experience side of things from the user's perspective versus some random metric that matters to you as a business, like the number of people that have gone to this stage of the funnel, for example. So this is really interesting. I think one of the things I also see in a lot of these companies is that there is this constant struggle between what the industry is saying a new standard might be. For example, 
customer experience. A lot of people talk about end-to-end experience. How does that look like for the customer, et cetera? And the more immediate side of things, which is how many people have, you know, subscribed, how much monthly recurring revenue are we making out of this customer base, et cetera. Bringing these two sides of this equation together is not always easy, like the experiential side and the revenue side. How do you see leaders talking about this in their company and federating people around this idea that investing in the experience will eventually pay out on the revenue side? If you assume what I told you is correct just before everything, right? So like outcome base and like also customer outcome, success metrics and so forth. There is one thing missing and there is the correlation between what a customer success is. So for instance, in the example of the bicycle, like how many kilometers that you drove and the revenue, you need to make this connection visible and it needs to happen on the sea level. So usually the conversation that I have with clients and they're usually in the segment of about 30 million to 100 million right, per year. That's like the revenue that they push is that they're all aware of it, but they don't know how to measure exactly what you just said. So so what does good user experience mean? And this is what I'm saying. It doesn't matter whether the product looks ugly in your eyes or whether it doesn't. If the customer thinks it's beautiful, that's all that counts. So as long as you measure this particular part of the customer success and you can tie it with a correlation analysis, this is something that your data teams can do. It's not terribly hard to do on most of the core metrics then who cares? Because ultimately what companies are interested in is making more revenue. But I want to be absolutely clear on this. This does not mean that your product looks shit because it sounds a little bit like counterintuitive. It's just that a product that looks bad will not generate customer happiness anyways, but a custom tool that looks pretty and is bad in usability absolutely will tank your customer success metrics. And that's how you tie it to the revenue and the things that matter in the end. And companies have to develop trust in this, right? So this is a process. This is not something where like layout comes in and then everybody goes, oh my God, that is really fascinating. Because the problem is always whenever you have these LinkedIn tips, like, hey, three tips to get product like growth going or whatever, you always pivot an existing organization to a different direction unless you found a completely new startup. And even then you still also need to know How do you bring this on the very specific operational level into the individual teams? How do you set up the ceremonies? Do you even need ceremonies? How do we reduce the processes without everything going completely haywire? This is why people like me have work. I like paid advisory gigs exactly for this reason, because this is not easy to do. We have to stop pretending that customer centricity is easy. But once it is set up, you never get it out of the company again. Because once this link is established, you will have a very hard time to come back with any of the dinosaur models because the customer acquisition cost, also in sales and also in enterprise, is just incredibly lower than any of the other models that we know, like sales-led or marketing-led. The problem is it takes time. And we need to be realistic about this. That means if you have six months of runway left, product-led growth is not going to save you if you don't have it yet. It just takes time. It might take a year before you see any tangible impact on your revenue top line. And the reason for this is, let's say you bring it into the company and you onboard a lot of smaller companies because that's usually the movement that you make, right? So like you access way more companies at the bottom of the funnel. 
that are not worth to be engaged with from a salesperson, some of those will start to mature with you. They will get to you once they have 10 people and then they actually grow to 30, 40, 50, right? So these are the startups that are going through the roof. They will stick with you if you have a tool that scales with them. So it's not just, oh, we have a low segment and we have a high segment. Companies move. And in a sales-led approach, there is no incentivization for a salesperson to actually foster the smaller deals. Why would they? It takes two or three years sometimes. I'm not going to work at this company anymore in two or three years. Why should I take care of this? But this is why we said, hey, as long as we know that this is happening, we are going to incentivize and also reward the teams based on this customer success, and then it's going to turn out fine. And that's why this actually is necessary to connect it with the top-line metrics all the way down to the operative stuff. This actually reminds me, so we talked a little bit about metrics earlier. You talked about value capture and value creation. We didn't talk about acquisition. And I think this is something that I'm interested in because you talked about trust earlier, which is like this key component of everything we're talking about right now is that at some point, a user, a customer has to decide to choose option A over option B. So that's your company versus the competition, right? Uh, You talk about value, showing value as soon as possible. And when we were having this conversation last time, you were telling me how in this world of technology we're in right now with all these possibilities, it's never been easier to claim that your company can do basically anything. I'm super curious to hear your point of view on What is your view of showing value as quickly as possible? And how do you capture the customer in that moment? And where have you seen this done beautifully? And one thing that just also comes to mind right now is I read this LinkedIn post last week around how obviously AI is booming at the moment with everything that's happening with ChatGPT, et cetera. And Intercom, the company changed their headline on their hero section on their homepage. And it's now the only AI customer service solution you need. So I see the parallel between these two things, like the value talk and like, how do you position to capture that customer in that moment and show value as soon as possible? How, like, how do you approach this topic and where have you seen this being done beautifully? So... Let's go back to the intercom topic because we can circle it around this one. What has happened in the last two months, and I'm also working in a company as a head of product that deals with machine learning and AI products, right? So like we're building them, like we're building a machine learning model to predict the weather and so forth. But what has happened in the last two months is that before AI was not a thing, it was not a thing for products that much, right? Like people did not really understand the power of it and what you have to do with it, right? It was not. I think one just off of that, I recognize two moments because I've experienced some of this firsthand. Like back in 2016, 17, there was a big AI moment. Like everybody was putting AI in their pitch decks. People were raising a lot of money just by throwing the word AI around, but it never actually materialized from a product point of view in a very tangible way. And now this year, what we're seeing is that it's customer facing. People can like use these tools and it's showing value straight off the bat. So I can see there were like these two moments, right? Exactly. 
and this is the this is an interesting thing because this is usually happening, right? Like it's there's a hype, money goes down, and then the usable thing starts to come, and then you have another spike. So ChatGPT by itself is not that revolutionary in what it does, and it's not that crazy from a technical standpoint. What it does is it tries to predict the next word that is coming on a prompt. The amazing thing that people need to understand that it does and why it's going through the roof is because it is actually easy to use. It is incredibly easy to use. I can talk to it and then I get an output. It simplifies this entire process of going on a website, try to find something on Google. No, I can just talk to it like a person. And it's not just like imitating it. It's just the way that we interact with the world. But the underlying technology to get something going itself is not that revolutionary. It's been around for quite some time. Like language models are not the newest thing. But this one thing was missing where you can just talk to it and then you get a tangible output from it. Like it was all connected. And as you said, AI was in all pitch decks and then it was the fad and nobody believed in it anymore. And now it's also what happened to product like growth. People don't really understand it, right? They're like, yeah, it was nice, but I'm not re- I don't really understand it. As Teslas, electric cars, same thing. The first ones, oh my fucking God, this is the future. This is going to be so amazing. And then you hear nothing for them, right? For three to four years, nothing happened. And now they are everywhere, except for Sicily. They don't have electric cars. I don't know why, but I got been there in holidays. This is a normal curve for new technology. But what now happens with AI is that AI becomes commoditized. There is so much that you can do with AI, and AI is just like the form of a product, that one of the problems that you now have is that if you want to use AI-powered tools, you don't know anymore where to choose from. So Intercom addresses this by saying, chill out, it's fine, we have the good tools, right? So you can come to us, and if you come to us, that's all you need. We got you covered. We got you covered good enough. It's a one-stop solution. And this is usually happening when the market is getting super hyper-fragmented, and then you have this one solution that kind of gets everything in. A good example is when Netflix completely rolled up the entire TV market. It was hyper-fragmented, unjokingly, three to 400 stations per state in the U.S. In Europe, it wasn't that much better. I think even in a small country like us, in Switzerland, we had five, six stations, and then you had to subscribe to this service. And then you had to also decide, oh, am I going to go with this teleclub or this stuff and that stuff? Netflix came around. They did not have the same programs. And that's the funny bit, right? They did not take the same product. It's just, if you want to watch TV, here's the thing where you can watch enough TV. Also, you don't get any advertisements and it's it's not even the same stuff. So people also said with Netflix at the start, yeah, but I cannot watch live sports there. Yeah, but I cannot do this and that. It still went through the roof because what it did is it addressed the core job behind something, which is, I want to sit down on the couch and spend a nice evening, right? And I don't want to deal with ads. So the market then became disrupted and Netflix was the winner takes it all. And now the same happens again. It's starting to be commoditized. We have we have all these other different services, Prime, Hulu, whatever it is, right? So all of, now the market becomes fragmented again. So I don't know who's going to take it afterwards, right? But there will be another movement following. And this is a normal market movement that usually happens. Hyper-commoditized, unifying, hyper-commoditized, unifying, and so forth. And to your question on which companies are doing it great, the simplest to understand this motion of showing value quick is any product 
that is easy to use without going through this entire motion of installing it, for instance, and then listening to it. So for instance, if I want, if I listen to music on Spotify and I share the link with you of a song, you do not have to install the application. There is a web player that automatically shows, oh, that's really good music. So the product is not the music itself. It is the, the oh, okay, they have this music, right? It's, hey, it's the one-stop shop. This is really cool to do, right? And there is social proof and there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. Every year we have now this Spotify, what was it called? Wrapped? Spotify Wrapped? Or wrapped. Whatever? Yeah, Wrapped. Yeah. So like the summary, like now they're also going to really tap into the social aspect of it. Hey, if you want to have a cool overview of what you listened in the last year, then you have to come to Spotify. You would have not gotten anyone with a feature description like this. Hey, Axel, if you subscribe to this service after a year, we send you a survey on, on what you listened to and how awesome it was. But once you see your friend actually posting about it, you get the message. And this is the reason why product-led growth is so extremely powerful. We're not talking about features. We're showing them. And then you inherently get it. And that's the difference between feature pages where we're just like, hey, we have this net. No, we make it easy for you to experience value of stuff. And nobody forces you to sign up for anything. You just you can just go, right? And that is what drives user acquisition and then also drives people to, to paid services like Spotify, like Netflix. I would even say that pro Tesla is actually a good example. I'm not a huge fan of Tesla anymore, but like just in general, like I think that they have it really down with product-led growth if you compare it to other car manufacturers. Ordering a car online was absolutely unheard of. Everybody told you that, no, this cannot be done. You need to look at the car in person first. It's not possible. It's too much money. How, who is going to accept $40,000, $50,000 in credit card payments? Turns out you don't have to. You just order the car, you make a down payment of $100, and then the rest is being handled in a different channel. And this is why we don't care usually about the particular solution as long as you solve the problem. And I'm okay with it. That's how I bought my car. I never saw my car before it got delivered to my doorstep. That is not normal. That is not normal <laughs> in the past. And yeah, this is how the industry is changing now. We're moving on to my favorite segment of this show, which is called the treasure chest. I have a bunch of questions for you now. What would you say have been some of the most helpful resources you've used in the past as a product leader to deliver impact in whichever context you were in? That is a lovely question because I used to do mentoring a lot for other mm -hmm. product people. And I always tried to also measure the backflow of this. So for instance, let's say you and me are in a mentoring session and I suggest to mm -hmm. you a book. At some point, I will probably ask you, did you ever read it? But not in an <laughs> accusatory way, but hey, did you read it? And if you did, like, what was the kind of impact that you had? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that I can recommend books and I can recommend platforms and stuff and so forth. The problem is, it is important for people to understand that the context and the value of a book or a resource is changing depending on where you are in your career at that particular moment. For instance, Inspired is not a useful book for me at all. It isn't. I would even go as far and say it's bloated, right? But that is because I don't need to be convinced how the ideal state of product management looks like because this is how I work with every day and I have my own idea. But having said that, I think. What is incredibly useful and the most singular source that was useful for me was to find someone in your life that gives you a recommendation 
and then you actually listen to it and you whether it derived value from it. And if you did, then you ask for another recommendation. I had a few people in my life that had an incredible hit rate in recommending me stuff after I told them what I'm looking for. So for instance, like I go to these people and I say, look, I have this particular problem. I suck at structuring a sales department above DSDRs. What would you recommend that I'm doing to plug this hole? Some of them might recommend a book. Some of them might recommend a podcast or whatever. But the trust that I built up with these particular people, it's not about the tip that they give me. It's about that they give it to me because they know me also a little bit. And I only go to these people and I continuously ask them. It's always the same people that I ask. I'm not going to go through my entire friendship for like a group. So the stupid answer here is to find someone that gave you a good tip in the past. Describe something that you want to become better at. And then have them give you another recommendation. But for that, before you can do this, you need to have a growth plan and also like a map of what you want to learn. And for that, you need to also materialize this. So sit down, try to figure out, hey, this is what I want to learn for the next year. I always have a growth plan every year. And I'd say this is not to be undervalued. Find someone that is good in a particular area that you trust and then give them the benefit of the doubt and read what they recommend you. Brilliant. Thank you. What would you say to your early career self, what advice would you give the layer from years back who was starting in this big world of te technology? Don't pretend that you have your shit together all the time and stop pretending that you know everything. I was absolutely insufferable to deal with until relatively recently, I would say until four to five years ago. And one of the problems is that if you start to move up in your career, you get the fancy titles and you start to be a manager, a leader, then senior leadership. And so there is this reflex in all of us that we have to change our behavior based on this title that we have. Oh, we have to pretend that we have our stuff together like this other person over there. And that is just detrimental. And I think we're doing ourselves at this not a favor for this. It took me quite some time to really understand and say, there is no weakness in standing in front of people. And just to say, I work in product and I don't know about this particular product skill. Can someone help me out with this? This took me a lot to get over myself because I felt like if I admit that I don't know something about product, that people will not respect me anymore. And you can slide into this problem very fast because what we do is we chase titles, we chase salary. And then we think, oh, no, yeah, now I got another salary bump. That means now I can, I can pretend less that I don't know something because now I need to get, I need to keep up the appearance. That's total garbage. Wisdom is the one thing that looks bigger the further away you are from it. That's a quote from Terry Pratchett that I absolutely love. And the older you get, I think the easier it is to really accept that and just say like, there's actually seniority and just standing in front of people and say, hey, I'm leading you guys and I have no idea what I'm doing. So that would be my advice to, the, to early Leah. Just don't be this insufferable. Just accept it. It's fine. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. I think it's very inspiring. All right. My favorite question of this show. You are going to imagine you're stranded on a deserted island and you can only have the two following things. First thing, a book. Which book would you take? And second thing, an endless supply of one specific dish for all meals going forward. What would that dish be? I would say for the book, something that helps me to survive on a deserted island. 
if the question is, what is the most valuable book in my life? If I could just only read one about product leadership or whatever. It doesn't even have to be about product, like any book. Yeah, no, fair enough. I would say The Earned Life by Marshall Goldsmith is a very beautiful one. It's about letting go of worries. And it also hints a little bit of what I just said, like being insufferable and like caring so much what other people think. It's an absolutely beautiful book. The downside of having it on a stranded island is it's not very long. That means it's you're going to run out of burn material very quick. <laughs> so if it was about burning the amount of pages, then I would say any McKinsey book that deals with company valuation, because those tend to be really big. An endless supply of a specific dish. I'm not sure whether it's a dish, but like salt for a very specific reason. What salt does to your dishes in the end, or like to any meal that you prepare is it amplifies the taste. And only things that taste strong are worth it in your life because then you either know that they're disgusting or they're not. And with salt, you can preserve everything, right? Like I can put fish into salt and then like they can last for at least three years. Don't chase stuff that is bland. Use salt on everything. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I really enjoyed our conversation. If people want to reach out to you, can they do so on LinkedIn? Yes, they can. Try to be mindful about my time. I will not answer to everyone. That's just not possible anymore. But I love talking about products. And if you engage with me in my comments, there's a big chance that I actually do, that I do reply. So LinkedIn is totally fine. Yeah. Sounds good. We'll put the link to your website in the show notes. Good luck with everything you're doing at Jura and with your advisory work. And hopefully we'll get to speak very soon. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panache.io slash podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O slash podcast. Until next time.